Welcome to the Liberty Experts Podcast, where all your liberty questions are answered, discussed, and debated by experts. Now, here are your liberty experts, Tim Moen and David Birnbaum. Hey, Tim, how's it going? Uh, David, I just shot myself in the eye with Nicorette spray. I was... Uh... Yeah, you have this is why you never look down the barrel of the gun to see if it's loaded, because uh, that's exactly what I did with this Nicorette right. spray. And to see why it wasn't coming out, and it came out right into my eye. There you <laughs> go, people. That's uh, vote for vote TM for PM. All right. Uh, um, so today we wanted to talk about my. Uh, so I got diagnosed with autism officially, and um, maybe some people will find a conversation about it interesting. I, I think you will, in particular. And also someone already commented, I posted on YouTube talking about it. Someone commented about how like libertarians are like politically and psychologically atypical or something like that. Um, yeah. So it's funny because I do think like my, like my ability to be very rational all of the time or most of the time seems to be linked to like, well, like it just didn't make sense ever to not be. But anyways, yeah. I don't know if you want me to start and riff a little bit about like how I came to think I might have autism or um, or if you want to just like ask questions. But yeah, so it's like um, just maybe a week and a half, two weeks ago, I finally got my official diagnosis. It's also an interesting like maybe in a separate episode or if we want to talk about it, this one, it's an interesting like discussion of the like Canadian medical system because it's been a pain in the ass. Right. And I've been yeah. like ignored by doctors. I had to sit or I didn't have to, but I sat with some like doctor for four hours who just didn't listen to me. And it was like, and then he prescribed me something. And I was like, I'm not taking the prescription. You didn't listen to anything I said. Right. But I imagine in some people who aren't as confident or intelligent as I am, they talk to a doctor for four hours. He prescribes them something. Okay. They take it. Whereas I knew he had no idea what he was talking about. Right. And so right. why would, right. So it's an interesting sort of it's been a, like a struggle to get a diagnosis that I think is mm -hmm, accurate. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's interesting. Right. And let's just pause there for a second, because, uh, you know, that has everything to do with the way our medical system works. Right. Uh, doctors are not free to bill patients more to see that, see them for longer periods of time. Right. So the way doctors make money, to get as many patients through as possible through their office. And so, you know, they, they don't want to see you for more than seven minutes. They want to know what the problem is and prescribe the fix for it. Right. It's also like, I don't have, you know, $1,500 to see a psychologist, which I should have seen, you know, two years ago. Right. Because my money is taken and paid to the medical system as such. So I see a psychiatrist I see another psychiatrist, right? It's like, I want to just talk to a psychologist. If I would have had my money back from OHIP, then I could choose which doctors I give it to, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so where do you want to start? What, what do you well, want to okay. Yeah, I let's just, just tell, tell me what made you think you had autism other than you're a, basically a libertarian and, you know, <laughs> well, that's, no, that's, that, that's um, like a stereotype I, I, that might be true. Um, well, so... When I graduated university, we've talked before about like my mental health issues generally. And, you know, for from like 2017 through towards the end of 2018, I was mostly dealing with depression and anxiety and everything I had been told about, like my issues were like anxiety related, right? Like I had a hyperactive brain, I couldn't turn off my thinking. And so that was labeled as anxiety. But 
I felt at some point that I had a really good handle on my anxiety as such, because, you know, that was always associated with like values at stake or like it was anxiety is more uh, emotional. Right. Um, right. And so I felt like I had a really, really good handle on my anxiety, but everything they told me that applied to anxious thoughts for me actually applied to every thought. So it's like, I didn't have to care about it. It was, it was just like, I was doing some work and then the work thoughts would be running through my mind. And it wasn't, I knew I wasn't anxious. I didn't care, but everything they had told me still applied. And when I started to apply the mindfulness techniques around like stopping the anxious thoughts, it would like clog up my mind and I couldn't think at all. So it was like, it was like I needed to tease something apart that was just being labeled anxiety. And so I thought it might be bipolar. That's what I thought, like, cause I used to be a very erratic person, uh, like all over the place. And I heard Halsey and Kanye West talk and they both have bipolar and I really resonated with them. That led me to see a psychiatrist for the first time. It was the first time I actually got like, you know, medical help. Cause I was like, I know depression, I know anxiety, but there's something else in my mind that I don't have control of. I don't understand. Um, that led me to see a psychiatrist who did a triage. Then I did like a mental health program and they ended up diagnosing me with ADHD. I didn't feel like that was the answer, but they said it's not bipolar. Bipolar is something else. Makes sense. I don't know that much about it. Right. Um, and, but they, they gave me some ADHD meds. None of them really helped. Then what happened is because until that point, I, I, at that point I became like, an investigator of myself, right? I really wanted to understand what was going on in my mind. And so until that point, the, the thoughts that would overwhelm me, let's say, were all in my view, like deep thinking, like, you know, I would spend a lot of time working on complex problems. And so then I couldn't keep control of my thoughts then. But at that point, that's when I moved to Waterloo and I started working as a cashier at the coffee, at a coffee shop. And I just noticed how much even that overwhelmed my mind so just like you know there was music in the background and there was a lot going on and I was doing like you know quick cash calculations in my mind all day and I would be exhausted and my mind would be running and running and I couldn't control it and so I started to reflect more on like the sensory stimulation because it wasn't just like deep thinking it was just like so much data being fed into my mind um, and so that's when I, I saw the doctor again so I saw her in November I saw her again in maybe February or March. And that's when I said, like, I think it might be um, Asperger's or autism. And, and I started to really investigate and pay a lot of attention to, like, I, I introspected looking back and I started to pay a lot of attention to my life at the moment. And, you know, sensory stimulation had actually always been an issue. And that's why I left Toronto, actually, was like, I remember going to New York, being like this, and then coming back to Toronto and being like, wow, this is so much. It's so loud here. Um, and like having sensitivity to sound and things like that, like my heater, I hate the place I'm living right now because the heater is too loud. And like, mm. I always hear it. It's always on. And it's like, like when, it, when I turn it off, it's like my mind takes like a breath of fresh air. Um, but anyway, so that's sort of what led to the investigation. And the more I learned about the autism spectrum, the more it made sense that that's what was going on. And then I started to dig really deep, like the amount of I have like, you know, whole psychological theories and, and like, I have like a unique relationship within my own mind um, than, than average, it seems. But that was the, that was the conclusion that made the most sense to me. 
And, you know, I thought I, I've read about it a bit. And in particular, I read like Temple Grandin's book, Thinking in Pictures. Um, and just the more I investigated, the more that seemed to be the answer. And when I started to sort of take that as an assumption, it, it made more sense. Like it helped me integrate my information more about myself and my history. Um, but it was like very tiring because I wasn't certain. I didn't know what I like, you know, and I found tools that help. But I wasn't sure, especially like marijuana was one of them that was really helpful for me to get control of my mind. But I wasn't sure if I was doing it properly. I don't know how marijuana affects the brain, let alone the autistic brain. And like, so there was no guidance, right? So it was like very difficult for me to like kind of do all of this work on my own. And so eventually, um, you know, I became more kind of certain in my view that I did have it. I was talking to someone else who's very intelligent, who also thinks he has Asperger's. And like together, we both like, you know, two very intelligent people being like, this seems to be the right answer, but I still wanted to know. And so I started to pursue again, just in the fall, like an actual diagnosis. And so, right. um, you know, I went through my, my like GP, who then referred me to some, um, some psychiatrist who, yeah, was just like, honestly, a piece of crap, right? Like he just, he denied that I had any self-awareness, denied my assessment of my own situation, didn't listen to me for four hours and then told me I had anxiety. And it's like, I know I have anxiety. This isn't why I'm here. And then prescribed me drugs. And I'm like, this guy's Jesus. a fucking bozo. Um, but then I went back to the psychiatrist I'd seen like a year and a half ago um, and told her, look, I think this is it. How do I get a diagnosis? She referred me to a psychiatrist who is like, uh, they, she called him the, the autism guru at the specific hospital she works at. Because again, right. it's more the field of psychology, which isn't covered by OHIP as far as I know. Um, but he's like the psychiatrist. So I then met with him. We went through an assessment and he was like, yeah, I support this diagnosis, which makes sense. You can do diet, you can do assessments online and stuff. And like I've done research. Um, yeah. yeah. So that sort of catches us up to why I thought okay. I had it and, and this kind yeah. of thing. So, uh, so what exactly is autism then? Like how, how would you define it or how is it defined? Like so I, when I, I think of autism, I, th I think of, okay, the one thing you mentioned, sensory overload kind of thing, yeah. like too much stuff coming in kind of overwhelms you. Uh, and then the other thing is, uh, the other one you hear often is not picking up on social cues or something like that, or kind of, mm. but it yeah. seems like you're highly attuned to social cues. Like I, I but like even guessed. the way in which I learned that was just through like practice. It wasn't like oh, okay. natural to me. Like gotcha. I was always watching everything as a kid and like, Oh, this is how I act. Right. So it was like, that's right. why I always had the issue of like, you know, since I was four, I felt like I was playing a role because it wasn't me. It was like paying attention and then deciding how I should behave. Right. right. So, and I was, I was very attuned to it. So I knew how to do the things, but it was always like, Oh, I was, it wasn't natural. I was choosing to do it. Right. Okay. Um, and so in the video I posted, I don't have the lit. Let one second. Um, yeah. So here I have the main reasons he said he supports the diagnosis that I learned social norms empirically that mm -hmm. um, I used to control the room to ensure predictability because I didn't know how to conduct myself. So I was like the leader. So if I controlled the atmosphere of the room, that was safe. Right. 
Right. And I knew how the I knew how the situation would go. Then there's right. the sensory sensitivity, which is a big one. Um, we've not talked on this show that much about uh, my gender stuff, but gender dysphoria is actually common in uh, people with autism and like just gender issues generally. It's more like I think within the autistic community, they're more common than in the like non-autistic community. Um, right. Phases of obsessive interests is another thing. So I used to get like so obsessed with things for like long periods of time, learning social cues and nuances of humor. So like not really understanding that. So I used to like make a joke of everything, like literally. Right, right. Um, and getting stuck in thoughts and beliefs. So like literally getting stuck in my own thinking and not being, not understanding that people could have different views than I could. Like I literally didn't understand that they could. And so I right. thought if someone disagreed with me, they must be like evil or dishonest um, hmm. because the, like, I didn't know that there was like reality and my view of reality. There was just right. my view of reality, right? That's all oh, I had access to. Um, yeah. And so for me, like the, and so that's what he outlined for me. Um, there's um, like the, the sort of two main things were, yeah, this sensory oversensitivity um, which was a big one that I never actually noticed because for a long time for me, my, actually my thoughts were so loud. Like I, like my thoughts were the loudest out of anything. So I only noticed that I was sensitive to like, like actual perceptual sensation, like sounds and sights and stuff after my mind started to quiet because, um, because like, I was just always like on my heels in my own head right? right like it's hard to explain to people how chaotic my life was uh until i was um 25 right um yeah so that's sort of interesting the precondition but i think yeah so there's like i think i don't know that much about the actual science right like now i'm going to start investigating that more um but I, I personally care more just about like the relationship in my own mind than like what is autism as such. But right. to me, like, you know, it's called autism spectrum disorder. And a, I think the biggest thing for me seems to be that it's about, yeah, how do you filter and deal with sensations? Right. Cause you know, if you right. think someone like me, okay, there's, you know, maybe for the average person, the amount of sensation that gets in gets through is two out of 10. For me, it's four out of 10. So it's really chaotic and it was difficult for me to deal with and there was too much, but I could still manage. Um, whereas if it's a nine, that's when you get people who are like, you know, let's call it the stereotype of autism, like, cause right. their mind's just chaos, right? They can't, their brain can't organize the endless sensory data that's filtering in. And so it's just overwhelming, right? Like literally. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And um and so the, the other thing that I think is related, which I've not come across anywhere else, is this, I have this idea that I'm very, it's almost like I can feel my brain, although I put that in quotes, because apparently that's not actually true. There's no nerve endings in the brain, so you can't actually feel it. But there's yeah. this thing that I've experienced and that is common with autistic people, uh, or that I, as far as I know, that they have like bad bodily awareness, Right that they don't, they're not really embodied much, right? Mm. And for me, my assessment of why that's the case for me is that the, the thoughts 
were so loud that they, and like, I could feel them as like headaches almost that it like the, the feeling sensation, like that was totally taken over by my thoughts. So I couldn't feel my body because like that, like that lens, let's say was actually turned upward rather than outward, um, which is kind of interesting. And so that's sort of my, my overall view of why right. I was or whatever. Um, Mm. Right. Okay. So now that you have the diagnosis, how does that uh, inform you going forward or how does it help you? Uh, so the biggest thing, it was a sigh of relief. Like it literally felt like, you know, I'd been carrying this weight for two years on my own. Not sure if it's even the right, like I'm on the right path, not certain right. I'm on the right path. So there was a big sense of relief. And a lot of the knowledge I have of myself now, I think I can communicate and help a lot of people. Like I'm very intelligent, right. very self-aware. I've done a lot of investigation, so I hope to be able to help others and, and potentially the whole field. Um, yeah. But for me, it's provided a lot of clarity, right? Like it's a good lens through which I can understand things. Um, and it's also almost given me permission to like in private act weirder sometimes when I feel I need to, right? Because there's right. a stigma even with, and, and I'm pretty good at not having this, but there's a stigma even with myself if for whatever reason I want to sit on the floor and rock because I'm in a bad mood or whatever it is, right? right and I'm, right. I'm pretty good at like, because I was so into mindfulness, like just doing whatever it is I need to do and not judging myself. But there's like an additional allowance in my, in my subconscious now, like, right, right. and like, because even before I got the official diagnosis, there's some times where my mind would be so overwhelmed that I would literally just start like screaming. Right. And like, it was, it was, it felt good. That's how my mind wanted to express the angst, but like, that's not socially acceptable. But I remember once, even with a small thing, cause um, you know, I, I don't like surprises necessarily, especially for things that have been routine for a long time. So I was at my dad's cottage and he was telling me we're going to move my bedroom. And I was like, ah! <laughs> right? Like, like, mm -hmm. I, like, I did not like that. Like, I know right. rationally it's fine. And I was like, can't, and we negotiated that we would do it at the end of my stay rather than in the middle of my stay. But like, it was like, it was freeing to just let myself have the reaction I wanted to have and not filter it. Um, and whether or not I need the label to do that, that's a separate question, but it feels more acceptable now to have right. that. Um, and even just like with myself, right. When I, when certain, when my, like, it's when like I have a deep urge for something um, that is sort of like a bizarre thing, I accept it more. Whereas for a long time, I would have filtered it and not let myself act that way um, mm. because it's abnormal, even in like in when I'm alone. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, you've got a you've got a wild, unique mind there. Uh, it's a it's a treasure, you know. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see because it's certainly one of the things that like kept me rational and 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 logical, right? Like, um, I just didn't understand why people would if something didn't integrate, I couldn't accept it. Like, it just didn't make sense why anyone would. And so obviously right. I'd have issues with people because I would be very dismissive of their emotions if they disagreed with me and stuff, which is again, yeah. kind of typical. Like, I just literally wouldn't understand. Like, why are you upset? You're just wrong. Like, who cares, right? Like, yeah. I didn't understand why I'd get in arguments with people and this sort of thing. But I do think that's why, like, you know, 
I started to get interested. In, I, I started to think about politics for the first time, uh, you know, in 2018, basically. And within two years, I like, and yeah, I mean, you don't agree with all of objectivism, but I end up as like, like what I think is like pretty much the right answer, right? And it's not, <laughs> right, I, didn't right. have, I didn't have any issue with like letting go of false beliefs or past beliefs because I just hadn't really thought of it. And so whenever yeah. I investigate anything, my mind can't do anything other than just look for what is true, right? Like it doesn't, yeah. I can't actually ignore that. It's like, it's, I wouldn't even know how to do that. Whereas apparently for many people, like that's a lot of what they do, right? Sure. Yeah. And actually that resonates a lot with me. And I think it does with a lot of libertarians who, um, you know, like I, I feel like my, my ethics, my way of being, my, my moral compass, what I ought to do was built by myself from first principles after I had to deconstruct all the stuff around me. And it sounds like your brain was naturally kind of wired that way. Mine was too, to be honest with you. Like if I look back to when I was four or five, trying to gra grasp what I needed to do to be saved as a Christian. Um, there was always logical inconsistencies or something I couldn't quite integrate and figure out and it would drive me nuts. And I was always searching for that capital T truth. And I looked around me and no one else seemed to be struggling. It was just like, yeah, we accept it. Right. And uh, the, you know, I have a certain amount of, um, of, uh, I don't know, not quite jealous. Jealousy isn't quite the word, but just like people intuitively seem to know, um, you know, good things to do without having to like justify them from first principles in a lot of ways. Yeah. But, but the downside of that is that it's built on kind of, it's a house of straw, right? Like quite often, yeah, it keeps the rain off you and it works, but if there's any strong gust of wind, you get blown blown out of it kind of thing. Right. Whereas I feel like I've meticulously and through hard work and labor and debate and like self-reflection built up this um, foundation of values and principles and, and, you know, beliefs that are like kind of epistemologically, there's a chain from first principles uh, that I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground uh, compared to a lot of people. So that's, a, that's a strength. Uh, but yeah. one thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, one of the I, uh, things that's a trigger for me, and maybe you can just help me walk through this a little bit is, um, is the idea of, uh, I, I want to call it pathologizing thought patterns or, or um, personalities or something like that, right? So, you know, if, if you think you're, if you get labeled with the fact that you're depressed, uh, then it's true. If you get labeled with something else, then it's, you know, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. And, or, or if you're an addict, right, then that's just something you are. That's how your brain is wired. And it's something you're always going to struggle with. And I always, uh, I'm not sure quite what to make of it. Um, because sometimes I worry that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where, this is just who I am and how, who I'll always be. And I can't, you know, it'll be a constant struggle against myself uh, to overcome the right. whatever. So that's an interesting point because like when, when this doctor gave me this diagnosis, he was like worried, like, Oh, am I going to associate right. the label too much? Am I going to get obsessed with this? And I explained like, no, I, I, that's past, right. This is like the end right. stage of just a, like wanting to sort of know for, for my own clarity. But it's interesting because actually, as I was talking to him and others, I found they were they were more concerned with that than I was. 
they didn't want me to like label myself and then think that solves all my problems type thing. Um, or, you know, sure. some people think they label themselves and then it causes problems, right? The key thing is to not care about labels generally. And I don't know how to do that, right? Um, right. Like how to get someone else to not care for like the answer is like, you know, you just have to figure out who you are, right? Underneath everything. And then the labels come up as a convenient way to group certain thought patterns, certain people, but like fundamentally I'm an individual and it's just, oh, this helps connect my experience to other people who have these similarities to me, right? So right, for right. me, any sort of any of these labels, it's not about me, it's more about my relationship to others, right? Like, and, and what specific knowledge I should look for, what specific advice might be valuable to me, but any piece of information I get, I have to understand how it integrates to my experience, right? And I think that's particularly important for stuff like this, because for example, that doctor, he gave me a label and gave me some stuff, but I knew it didn't integrate to my actual experience. What he was communicating wasn't what I was communicating. And so it's the right. same, like, you know, if, if I get labeled with depression or, you know, or I'm an addict, right. I have to look, okay, well, what do they mean by that? What is my experience? Which parts overlap and what value can I get from this lens, right? Whereas people often, the same way they are with political labels, it's the same thing. They're, oh, I'm a conservative, so I'm not going to think about this view. The other conservatives say this, so I'm going to say that too. Not what are my values? Okay, I'm going to be a conservative right now because, you know, 60% of my values overlap with this party and 20% with that party but they, right. they think of it backward, right? So it's the same way people sort of look at political labels or any label. It's much harder because it's sort of really close to home with mental health labels, but I think mm -hmm. that's sort of the way you have to do it. It's no, who am I, what am I about? And then how can I contextualize this in the, with like, you know, the division of labor society? Cause I'm not going to solve every issue of myself, right? On my own, right? Right, right. Yeah, and I guess it would be, um you know, one thing to, you know, the, if I guess if the label helps you understand who you are um, so that you can then you kind of, kind of move forward, that's one thing. Um, if it's, if it becomes your, I guess, identity, that might be another thing, right? Like, um, right. you know, I, I'm thinking of back to my own mental health stuff with PTSD. If I had been slapped with that label and said, well, this is just what you have. This is the disease you have, the mental disease you have. It's called PTSD and here's the prescription and you're going to have to manage it. it. It may never go away. Uh, well, I wouldn't have had it cured with one question in a therapist session, which is basically what happened to me. And, um, you know, uh, looking at how, for example, addiction develops and all the research that shows it develops from adverse childhood experience. There's probably a genetic component too in, in that not everyone who has an adverse childhood experience gets, uh, it becomes an addict, but, um, a certain segment do, and you have to, you know, it seems like you almost need that childhood trauma to, to develop an addiction. Well, then if you label yourself an addict and say, well, I'm always going to be struggling with this, it might, uh, lead you away from the cure. And, uh, you know, from what I understand, Gabor Mate, you know, takes people through ayahuasca ceremonies and, and helps them get personal insights and, and reflection. They, they get epiphanies, which 
essentially cure them. Um, you know, 50 to 75% of them are cured within the first or second um, ceremony uh, because they get what these sudden epiphanies, similar to what I got in that therapist's office, and I've had those the sudden well. realization of, of that. And so, um, yeah, so, so that's what, and I was just, uh, there's a book I've been meaning to read. It's called The Myth of Mental Illness by Thomas Zaz. I don't know if you've ever read it. No, but um, that's a, that's one that's um, that I've heard a lot of people talking about that um, I've got it on, had it on my but, Kindle for a while. You know, I think, you know, the, the I want to, uh, and, and, and sorry, I just want to say that. So the, I think the underlying premise of, of Thomas Zaz's work is that, um, you know, so for example, addiction is a natural um, response to certain stimulus to, childhood trauma like it's a way of dealing with it you know and and specific childhood traumas relate in different types of addiction so if, if you have a poor maternal connection uh you are craving that maternal connection and heroin or opiates provide as the same kind of maternal connection it has the same brain chemistry the same parts of your brain light up as the part of an infant that lights up when it has that maternal attachment so in a sense that there's, it's almost rational or understandable, at least how someone would, would go to an opiate to try to chase that dragon and get that human need filled. Right. And so, um, you know, but slapping a label on that person saying, well, you are defective. No, no, you're actually highly effective. That's exactly what you should be doing is chasing that return in, in a sense, right. Uh In one sense, you, you need that mother's love, but you're getting it from the wrong place. And that, that's the problem there, right? So, and so, yeah. I think Anyways. there's a few different things that should be teased apart. And there's probably yes. a, a potential disagreement or there might be a disagreement between us here as well. Because I think much of what you said doesn't focus on the fact of individuals' free will, right? So right. it's not like natural for someone to be an addict or it's, it's not good. I mean, it could be understandable, but they're choosing to seek that comfort through drugs rather than understand the need for that comfort and, and the lost uh, love or whatever it is, right? So that's one aspect. Sure. And, and with the idea of the myth of mental illness, you know, I think even before I would- um, But wait a second, isn't that true of every, uh, almost every mental illness or mental pathology? No, and so this is what pathology? I want to make clear, right? Like even before I would entertain a book called like the myth of mental illness, you have to be very clear that there are like neural chemical issues. Sure. There are yeah. like hardware, physical issues. And yeah. then there's what is the prominent thing now in the culture when we talk about mental health, that's depression, that's anxiety, right? right. So, you know, those I, th- I think are related to philosophical premises, right? And not having the right way of thinking right. about things. So yep. your mind you know, gets chaotic. That's different than apparently autism is not like that. It's like a neurochemical thing, like or something genetic. Sure, uh, you know, schizophrenia can be like that as well. There are there are other issues, so it's important. Like there's there's two or three camps, but there's like literal. Let's call it, yeah. for lack of a better term, birth defects, right? Mm-hmm. Like not that autism is a defect, but like that that you were born with. And then there are things that are more about premises, where I would put depression, anxiety, addiction, though I would label those, I would, I would group those as similar, right? So I think it's important to sort of, well, yeah, but I I wouldn't quite label it. Okay, sir. To labels, whichever of those two you have, whichever those of those you're labeled with, again, 
it's it should not be that you ident that it becomes your identity but right now the culture emphasizes some sort of group identity and like right. you know, oh so david has mental health issues now he's the mental health issue guy and everyone treats me differently too it's like no i don't want that right yeah. um and but you know some people it makes them comfortable it's a safe spot to be in they know how people will treat them because they lead with their label first or they know how to think about themselves and it's easier right if i'm just the depressed guy and then I'm sad one day, I don't have to think about why I'm sad, what values at stake, how do I improve my life? I just go, oh, well, this is just my depression. I'm the depressed guy, right? So like, mm -hmm. there needs to be clarity on that as yeah. well. But I think in particular, we have to understand that the most important thing is to understand that to the, as long as you actually are still in control of yourself, because there are people with mental health issues who are not, right? If you're psychotic or whatever it is, right? Um, but you still have the ability to choose what kind of life you want to, you know, work and understand your mental health issues to optimize your life, even if you have ones that, you know, can't be quote cured, like autism, yeah. like anxiety, I think can be cured, right? So, uh, I mean, at least for some people, right? Um, right. So it's important to understand that, no, this is just, you know, if I was tall or short, I okay, I can't be in the NBA if I'm short, but I can still make choices to optimize my life and still play basketball sometimes, right? So like th th this should be viewed more so in a lens like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, I, I don't think I disagree with that. Although I might, you know, I, I think it's interesting and it might be a topic for another discussion is the, the topic of the limits of free will, right? When you have uh, uh, hardware issues for say, that cause like so we'd have to get clarity on what free will is but the if it's impacted that's a scientific question which like you know would sure. need to be studied it's it's about the nature of the brain um and it's and and where you can it's also mind. philosophical though it's where you can make choices right and so i would say like an addiction um is the the impulse that you have for a mother's love let's say or that underlying drive to get that part of your brain satisfied that impulse is something that is unconscious that occurs that is maybe even a human need uh how you choose to fill that is is a choice right so you can't control the underlying need now you and i because we got our mother's love we probably wouldn't have the same impulse as and let's quote unquote addict um and and so if if i were an addict and i had that impulse i would have to do a lot of work i would think around First of all, replacing what, that. But what at, at what point, you know, if someone chooses, so my stepdad was uh, a heroin addict and got clean. If, yeah. if it's not free will that he event, like he did, he just randomly hit something that then made him stop using. No, it's, no, he is just he used his free will to do that. Right. right. So, so I'm saying I'm saying there's an impulse there, but I'm saying that that is true. I, I would think of almost every um mental illness that there's a point that there's some place where you could choose how to react to the impulses that are emerging from you that you can't control and then eventually you could probably even control those impulses or deal with those impulses through rational thought and through the choices you make to some degree right right but i'm saying there are definitely certain things that that's not true right there are some issues that are like the brain is deformed the brain is damaged right yeah so 
that like I like I said, addiction, anxiety, depression, even like so even I choose how I act when I have um, you know, certain things that might be caused by autism, which I'm told is like in, in right. camp A, but I still choose what to do when that comes about. But there yes. are there are a subset where no, you you literally the brain is damaged. Yeah, right? I mean, if you have a seizure, you you can't control that. That's not right. conscious, right? And I mean, there's things on a spectrum up to that point. Right, um, but any action you choose to take, right, or like someone can't unconsciously. I mean, unless they've already taken the drugs, like you don't go and get the heroin. Uh, without any thought at all. You have to take actions and you're aware of that, like you're aware of that, you're not in control, but that's because you've sub, you've given up your control. That's yes, my view, yeah. Right? Yeah, and, and that's my view too. And that's where, and that's I think what Thomas Zaz's view is in his, his book, uh, I have to read it. I think I read the Coles Notes version once and that was essentially his view that sometimes uh, pathologizing a person and saying, this is how you are, removes that free, that agency from them. Um, and prevents them from, you know, or, or give grants them an excuse not to make choices right. and, and not to exercise their free will. This is what and and it, 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 identity it, it, politics as well, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, so I don't have anything else. I mean, if anyone who's listening is interested in like more on this topic, I I, I have a whole podcast with my other friend who he's not diagnosed, but we're both pretty sure he has Asperger's as well or autism spectrum disorder. So if people are interested in learning more about this, this is a lot of what I'm spending my time working on now is like psychology and stuff. And I'm gonna be releasing, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts actually, Tim, I'm gonna be releasing, like I have a whole theory of how I think the mind works. And I I think I may actually like, you know, revolutionize the field of psychology. So we'll see, um, mm. but I'm gonna be releasing a summary video. Uh, so if people are interested in that, and then Tim, if you if you get a chance to check it out, we can talk about it on one of our podcasts as well. Sounds good, man. Cool. Well, thanks everyone for uh, indulging me talking about my, my Asperger's and, and now uh, go to btimedia.me, find the Liberty experts and support us. Yes, please.